Hello and welcome to Stump Death and Taxes. This is Meep, otherwise known as Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary. And today I'm talking about academia, credentialism, plagiarism, falsified data. And this is going to be the first part of, I think, three parts, because I have a lot of topics to talk about. Um, I have been writing about education for a long time. I've been writing online since 1996. Yes, I have. It's on marypat.org. I started a MEEP in Manhattan in uh, summer of 1996. I wasn't in Manhattan yet, but I started in at NYU in grad school in the fall. And education has been something that's been very important to me. And lately, you may have heard of a brouhaha that's been going on around, uh, you know, academia, elite education. And I'm going to do scare quotes around that elite education um, with regards to plagiarism, though it was spurred by something else entirely. So let me give you a little timeline. Now, what really kicked it off, of course, was the attack by Hamas at the beginning of October 2023 on Israel uh, from Gaza. Uh, then a bunch of stuff happened around the world, but including the U.S. Specifically, yes, there's been protest, but supposedly, though it was, you know, pro-Hamas. Oh, we're not pro-Hamas. We're pro-Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, or pro-Gaza, whatever. But uh, if that's the case, then why is it attacking Jews on campus in the universities? Yeah, that's a little obvious and specific, quote, elite. I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm going to sneer at you guys. Um, campuses were basically uh, allowing this behavior, whereas if it was other specific groups being targeted, you know these people would be sanctioned, the bad sanctioned, not the good sanctioned. So Congress called up various uh, presidents of different universities. Some were, <laughs> you know, very conveniently had other things on their calendar, but unfortunately, for the presidents of Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, and MIT, they went to the congressional hearing at the beginning of December and claimed that, oh yes, we're very pro-free speech. Except, of course, these institutions really don't have a good record with regards to free speech if one happened to criticize their particular sacred cows. So, you know, that was pretty obvious. The president of the University of Pennsylvania basically was forced to resign because, you know, all three of them had very crappy responses. Uh, all of, again, just very lack of credibility of, yeah, we're very pro-free speech. And it depends on the context. Um, yeah, the context has been over the last decade or so, you know, uh, if you said something like, oh, yes, I like Trump, for example, yeah, you'd be hounded off of campus. That's that's kind of 
the level of free speech you've got there. But um, you say death to Jews, yeah, they're going to they're going to say, hey, it's free speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harvard's looking at a lawsuit from Jewish students right now, by the way. Uh, the president of Harvard. So here's the timeline on this one. Uh, you know, again, there had been various protests from Har on Harvard campus. And it's not just Harvard. Columbia University had this. Um, and I saw one at Columbia when I gave a talk there. It was pathetically small. That's because something was going on at Bryant Park, which is the, you know, main New York Public Library right behind it, which of course, Bryant Park is a much more prominent location. Columbia University has a fence around it. And Columbia said, okay, if you want to protest, well, it's got to be Columbia people who are doing this. To get into Columbia, when I gave the talk at Columbia, I needed to have somebody let me into the campus. So somebody from the department um, for the actuarial science program to let me on campus uh, to give a talk there. And I'm like, hmm, this is pathetically small, but I happened to be there on a day where a much bigger protest was going on downtown. So that's the benefit of having a fenced-in uh, campus there. NYU, of course, does not have a Finston campus. It's open to the city. Uh, and I was, you know, in that area down at Union Square. It's not Washington Square Park. And again, another pathetically small, um, you know, I was there on a Saturday with uh, two of my adult children. We were at the Barnes & Noble there at Union Square, and we just saw a pathetically small uh, protest go by with the pre-printed signs from Answer, if you're familiar with that. So I'm like, oh, that's who's been providing the signs. Well, that's very interesting. Anyway, going off of that sideline, this is what's interesting in the timeline with regards to plagiarism in Claudine Gay. That was that she had been the president of Harvard. Uh, the accusations of plagiarism actually were being shopped around well before her congressional testimony. Uh, she had been making excuses for, you know, anti-Semitic uh, talk on campus before the congressional testimony, obviously. At the end of October, somebody approached the New York Post with evidence of her plagiarism in her doctoral thesis and her published research. And so the New York Post approached Harvard to ask them about it. And this is what we have from the New York Post. This is from a piece that was published uh, December 22nd, 2023 by Isabel Vincent, revealed Harvard cleared Claudine Gay of plagiarism before investigating her, and its lawyers falsely claimed her work was properly cited. Harvard cleared its president, Claudine Gay, of plagiarism before it even investigated whether her academic work was copied, the Post reveals today. In a threatening legal letter to the Post in late October, the college called allegations that she lifted other academics' work demonstrably false and said all her works were cited and properly credited. 
Days later, Gay herself asked for an investigation, and Harvard tore up its own rules to ask outside experts to review her work, saying it had to avoid a conflict of interest. And the experts then found she did need to make multiple corrections to her academic record. The bare-knuckled law firm Harvard employed to try to keep the plagiarism allegations from ever coming to light told the Post it would sue for immense damages. Harvard never revealed an investigation had been launched as the lawyers put pressure on the Post to kill its reporting. But more than a month later, on December 12th, Harvard said Gay had been investigated by its top governing body and was correcting two academic journals to acknowledge where her work had really come from, meaning the claim it was properly credited was false. And, you know, I'll link the Post article there in the show notes. Um, so, and it, it went on from there. Uh, there were multiple people behind this kind of media pressure. It wasn't New York Post. Um, there was Christopher Rufo, and there were a couple other people behind getting the information out about the plagiarism by Claudine Gay. So that's part of the timeline. And she was basically pushed to resign from the president post. She's still a tenured faculty member at Harvard. So he's not hurting for money. Um, she's just out of that particularly uh, prominent role. And who would want to be president of Harvard at this point? But part of the timeline now, one of the people that's involved in this is Bill Ackman, who's a prominent donor and very unhappy with the anti-Semitism on these elite campuses and, you know, has been making threatening noises about his donations, et cetera, et cetera. So somebody thought it was smart to go after his wife, Neri Oxman, I believe her name is. So Neri Oxman had, uh, you know, a PhD in something, and I don't even give a mm -hmm, about what her doctorate is in. 330 pages. A business insider ran with this, and evidently this had been shopped around, and it had to get down to Business Insider. Uh, nobody above that would touch it. And probably because Neri Oxman really has nothing to do with this other than being the wife of Bill Ackman. And uh, <laughs> she's not really an academic anymore either. She's like a consultant that has her own firm. So she's not going to fire herself. I mean, clients might fire her, but her they don't really hire her because she has a PhD. You know, so there's that aspect. And evidently they went with the lowest hanging fruit on the plagiarism and, you know, just took a few hits on it, not the whole schmear, as it were. But this was, you know, very stupid to do in terms of a strategy because Bill Ackman is a hedge fund guy and he's got a lot of money. And, you know, also he you went after his wife and he's already threatened you with regards to donations, with regards to the universities. Do you think he's going to stop with what he's done already? 
And now this is where we're going to stop back. He's actually gone further and said, you know, he's partnering with people and, you know, he has money to spare. He can take some of that money that he's not wasting on donations to Harvard and put it to some data people to go find plagiarism among the faculty of these various institutions. I mean, he can look at specific people, but he could like pick the entire faculty if he wants or entire journals and discredit them. Uh, if there is plagiarism there, of course. And this is where we do the off ramp and think about what the incentives are for plagiarism and what specific fields might have this problem. And now I'm going to step back and look at my own academic career because I'm a failed PhD and I don't have a doctorate, but I was in a doctoral program. Uh, <laughs> I did I did pick up a master's in 1998 along the way, but I wasn't in a terminal master's program at NYU. I intended to get the doctorate and I wanted to be a math professor. However, that didn't happen in 2001. You may have remembered something happened in September in New York City and some other places, uh, Washington, D.C. and a field in Pennsylvania. And uh, I reevaluated my life choices. And in 2002, I left NYU. And part of that, though, was my research, my, my dissertation research, which was a model of neurons, wasn't really going anywhere. I was having trouble making my code work. Um, you know, I was doing a model. It was a PDE, partial differential equation, that involved a probability distribution, and I needed to do numerical integration. And the algorithm, and actually I tried more than one numerical integration algorithm, by the way. I didn't just try one and give up. That I coded, and I think I was working in MATLAB or C, so it was one of those two, or maybe both, um, to try to code it. And I kept getting negative probabilities, not along the whole distribution, obviously. I did have it where it, it did integrate across the distribution of one, so at least that worked. But uh, negative, <laughs> negative probabilities are a no-no. They're not real. I could have faked my results, as it were, and like forced it to be zero or some other number and or done something to fudge it. And actually, I would have, you know, looking back now, you know, I might have done something different with regards to the numerical integration and just said, okay, you know, let's do something good enough and set it to zero when the probability goes under and then renormalize it to make it go to, you know, so the probabilities add up to one. Um, but that's starting to be iffy in terms of the dynamics I was looking at, and I didn't want to fake that. For me, if I wanted to continue in an academic career, and so it wasn't just that the research wasn't working, it's that I was looking at the viability of the career and I was not happy with where that was going to be. And that's part of the issue when you think of the incentives for plagiarism and fake data or both. Um, you know, one or the other or both because of the nature of the academic sector, the academic career. You have to publish 
Uh, you know, you have to produce research. And then I noticed people didn't really check and didn't really read other people's research very deeply. Most people were focused on their own research mostly. And when you read other people's research, it was kind of paper thin. I mean, you would look at other people's research in terms of to make sure you're not replicating. And this is, and this was a problem in my opinion. You're not replicating other people's stuff and you're not really checking other people's stuff. When uh, reviews were done of journal papers, it's not that they, people weren't replicating so much. Um, a lot of it, I mean, yes, people would look at it, but they're not necessarily doing, spending a lot of time in the review. In any case, um, it, it, I was not look, looking at a happy trajectory in terms of the demographics of the situation. As a Gen Xer, I saw a huge baby boom demographic ahead of me sitting in their tenured positions and waiting for them to die to get a position is, you know, was not really the greatest of odds. So getting into kind of the corporate world was more, I more reasonable to say the least. Now, PhDs can also work there, but, um, and I did see a lot of people going into hedge funds from Courant, which is the NYU math slash computer science department. Um, but I was not really wanting, I did interview at a hedge fund, but, um, yeah, that didn't go. So the actuarial world for me, it's been a good life, uh, for me. And some actuaries do have doctorates, but I don't, and that's just fine. But I did know, and it's not that difficult to get away with plagiarism and faking your data if you know what you're doing. So one wonders with regards to this search, Bill Ackman or the people he's hired, I should say, uh, are going to do and what they're going to find. Um, it's, I don't know how good the plagiarism checkers are. I used to teach a writing class at the University of Connecticut. Now it was called technical writing for actuaries, but that's not what it actually was. And it never was. The person, uh, Michael Brownstein, who basically created the course, a uh, half of the semester, the first half was all of the kind of getting your first job uh, kind of activities in terms of how to make a resume, uh, how to do your elevator pitch, going to career fairs, writing the thank you note after you've had an interview and that kind of thing. When I taught it, and I had all of Brownstein's materials when I taught it, uh, but I, you know, every person who teaches this course makes it their own. Uh, so in the first half, um, yes, I did the resume, but I also did building your LinkedIn profile, how to make that appropriate um, behavior on LinkedIn, sending a message on LinkedIn, doing cold emails, searching for jobs. And one of the things, because this wasn't in Brownstein's course was, well, how do you get the second job? Because the first job is, you know, relatively, I shouldn't say relatively easy. It's difficult, you know, very competitive. But, uh, you know, once you're there, there are recruiters that help, but like I talked about how to deal with recruiters and that kind of thing. So that's actually the first half. And you're like, what does that got to do with technical writing? Like, it doesn't. Um, 
but you know this is really important information for students. The second half was more writing. For Brownstein, it was you know building a report that was based around a model, and this was a little more a technical report around a model that had to do with planning for an actuarial department at a certain kind of company. And it was basically it's something that he had to do as head of an actuarial department once upon a time, and I forget which company he had done it for. I did a different one. I said, okay, everyone has to do a final project, which is pick an actuarial type topic, so some kind of risk topic, you know, insurance or pensions or something like that. You're going to write it for a non technical audience, a non-actuary, I should say a non-actuarial audience, and write something about that. So we had stuff like Ebola, because there was an Ebola outbreak at that time, self-driving cars, um, all sorts of things. So I taught this class from 2014 to 2017. And you know, um, they had to pick stuff, they had to come up with an outline. And you know, I did have a plagiarism checker for all of this. And I said, I know you're going to go to Wikipedia. That said, you need to go to the original sources. Wikipedia has footnotes, follow those footnotes. I showed them how to use the Wayback Machine to get to the original sources if those were stale links and all of that kind of stuff um, and showed them how to cite sources and that kind of thing. I didn't mind that they quoted stuff. I do this all the time, of course. But this is the problem, is that the plagiarism checkers, of course, will highlight the quotes, and then I have to check that the quotes were cited, yada, yada, fine. I, you know, quote plagiarize in that terms. If you look at my writing, you'll, you know, the plagiarism checkers will light up like a Christmas tree, because, of course, I am quoting myself all the time, but I'm also quoting other sources all the time, and you'll see it in black quotes. Sometimes Substack doesn't play nice and doesn't let me block quote nice, and so then I have to use formatting like an italic font or something to try to indicate that it's a long quote. Um, I try to make it clear when it's, when it's somebody else as a source or it's me from a different year, like from 2014, because I want it to be clear where it's coming from. I'm not trying to trick anybody. However, when it's somebody who's in academia and they are in what is basically a tournament career, which is there are fewer and fewer places the higher up the tournament you go, that um, there is pressure. There's pressure to produce research. You have to get actually published and there's only so many slots. You have to get the grants. You have to get, you know, this, that, and the other. You have to attract the students. And yeah, people will cut corners. And if you can get away with it, yeah, there's plagiarism checkers, but do the journals, do the editors actually check? That's a question. And the harder one, of course, is faked data. When I had, and I'll put the links to the data collada pieces again, the data collada guys who are kind of fraud detection experts in general, it took them a long time. They had reasons to believe certain uh, research reports had fake data in them, but 
it took them a long time to really investigate the data and dig that out. I have some data sets that I don't believe have fraudulent data in there, but they do have anomalies that I think are created by certain processes, and I'm having to figure that out. Uh, similarly, fraud is like a process, um, and I've seen some, uh, you know, this is one of those things I'm really into of, you know, what data, you know, handling data and detecting things. If I had wanted to with my, um, you know, neuron model that was not doing very well, but I needed to finish that thesis and really complete it, I could have faked the results and faked the thesis because nobody was really uh, testing it. Actually, I've got a better example um, from a published paper um, that I actually have my name on, and it has to do with modeling carbon nanotubes. Now, my contribution to this paper, I was an undergraduate uh, research assistant. Yes, I got paid to do this, but I was mainly babysitting uh, computers. I did some of the code. Uh, I, I believe it was in C. It was originally in Fortran, and then the graduate student whose doctoral thesis this was part of, he transformed it to C because Fortran was old and C was the current one. I was there to sit and run the code, this Monte Carlo modeling of these um, carbon nanotubes or bucky tubes. And so we were doing uh, these Monte Carlo models to try to figure out, you know, what's the strength of these when you try to pull them apart and also, you know, creating them, depositing them and that kind of thing. And it creates, uh, you know, various data, you know, data files. And I basically got the data and made the numbers, you know, processed it to do the numbers that made a graph, a single graph for the paper. If I had wanted to, I could have gone into the data files and edited them and changed the numbers. They were just, you know, text files. They would never have known that I had altered data files. It, there's no controls on that. It's it's just a .txt or .dat file, and it's just text files. Um, now, I didn't, obviously. There was no upside in it for me, but there are people who are, you know, get their kicks from messing with people. And the results that I legitimately got out of the programs, I was very surprised by, and I did talk to the professor about, I'm just going like, the results we're getting from this indicate really strong fibers. This, I, you know, is this really believable? And the professor's like, you know, this is what, you know, this is the result. Let's, you know, change, alter the parameters a little bit. So this is some sensitivity testing of the model. It's, you know, Let's do this. And the reason, of course, we're doing computer modeling is because we couldn't actually um, make the molecules in a controlled way at that time. Um, <laughs> the way you did it is like put some graphite and on an electrode and put a lot of energy through it and then see what you get. You get buckyballs, bucky tubes, and maybe some diamonds in there, maybe. Very, very microscopic diamonds. So, you know, this... 
it, it did turn out ultimately that Bucky tubes can be very strong. Uh, their tensile strength can be very strong. Um, so, you know, it did turn out to be correct, but, um, you know, I was surprised by the results of that research. Uh, in any case, the issue with a lot of the academia is there's really very little oversight. Yeah, they were like, oh, yeah, you know, you, you have peer review of the papers, but the peer review is tends to be of very low quality or mixed quality. Um, it really depends on the field and the people involved. And of course, given the nature of, you know, it's not really a growth, you know, these fields tend not to grow. And some of them have even shrunk in the number of available positions, definitely in terms of tenure track, that it's very competitive and you're elbowing each other out of the way for positions, you know, and you had people who are perpetual postdocs. So after you're, you get your doctorate and you want to stay in academia, usually there were some temporary one to two year positions called postdocs or postdoctoral positions. They're not, you know, they're not permanent and they often do not lead to a tenure track position. And a lot of people are in this limbo where, you know, they don't have a career arc and then maybe they get stuck in adjunct positions and it's not pleasant if they want to stay in academia. I, for years, I was telling friends who were in this situation in math that they should join the corporate world. I mean, I'm like, it's not just actuarial, but now there's data science. So, and there's all sorts of fun things going on in the corporate world that some of them are like, oh, okay, maybe it's not so bad, especially when they see all the crap going down in academia. So it's not such a hard sell now, but back in the early 2000s, a lot of my academic friends were still like, oh, but I want to be a professor. Some of them are full professors now, but, you know, others, it, it took a while before they escaped that uh, area. Um, I do love teaching. And one of the things that I told them is like, you don't have to be a professor to teach. And of course, I've gone back as an adjunct to teach, you know, um, but, you know, one foot in the corporate world, the adjunct, you don't get paid much as an adjunct. And as I've written many times, adjuncting should be a hobby job, not a full-time job. It doesn't pay very well. And trying to join a union and say, well, you should pay us more. Well, the whole reason they the adjunct position exists is because it's cheap. Um, you make it expensive, then all of a sudden those adjunct jobs are not going to exist. Uh, and you will have no job. The minimum wage that is true is zero. Take a hint. But back to Bill Ackman's little project. We'll see what he comes up with in this plagiarism search because after they went after his wife all bets are off i don't think they can uh, kind of foist him off at this point they made a very big error in trying you know it was bad enough in trying to protect claudine gay when she was definitely <laughs> plagiarizing in all of these papers um and 
the thing is the issue with the plagiarism is that it's trying to hide how little original content is in those papers. Yes, she quoted and cited a lot of the stuff properly in the paper, but if you highlight every single thing that came from elsewhere and then look at what's left, then you see, and, and in some of the cases, this is, um, you know, and I actually looked at some of the passages, uh, what she did is, you know, copy paste something from somebody's paper and then changed a word so that the passage meant opposite of what the original the person originally wrote because she had an opposing view which is you know fair enough she has an opposing view that i don't have an issue with but she's taking somebody else's words and changing them to express an opposing view and that's just i mean ridiculous uh that one cannot write one's perspective without like wholesale taking a paragraph from somebody else. Um, basically learn to write crying out loud. This is basic. Um, now this is why I am going to have a part two and a part three because part two is going to be in the age of generative AI, you know, chat GPT and all of that, where that can write your papers. And that's going to be, I mean, it's somewhat detectable. And I can talk about how that's detectable uh, versus these plagiarism checkers, which is fairly easy to, to do with the computing power we have now. Because what I'm thinking is you're going to find a lot of plagiarism in the humanities, particularly, not so much in the hard sciences, because, I mean, to the extent in the hard sciences that, yeah, there's going to be standardized language for certain kinds of statistical tests and that kind of thing. That doesn't count. Nobody cares that you're saying, oh yeah, we did a t-test and blah, 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 and p equals blah, um, and the numbers change. That doesn't matter. That's not real plagiarism. It's, uh, you know, substantive thoughts, paragraphs, etc That's going to be more likely to be in the humanities and more likely of the period of probably the mid 1990s to the mid, you know, to about maybe 2010, uh, when the plagiarism checkers got good, uh, at the point at which detection becomes better is more likely when people who are dependent on plagiarism got filtered out at a lower level. That's something that, I mean, this is a guess that's plagiarism, but faking data is a bad problem as well and harder to detect. That takes a lot more work. I don't know, and that's throughout, you know, that's gonna be the social sciences. That's gonna be in the hard sciences as well. Certain niches, I think, uh, where you're less likely to have people testing things because certain areas of chemistry, certain areas of physics, you might have areas where there's only one person really working on it and nobody else is really checking their results. If that's the case, people might think, well, you know, I need to publish and, and I'm not really getting any results. So I'm just going to make something up. Um, that's how it starts. A lot of people with the faking, and this happens in finance as well. A lot of the financial frauds, this happened with Enron, by the way, they did not start out they did not 
start out intending to be a fraud. What happened, and, and there were some other things like Societe Generale, um, the specific rogue traders. This happens with rogue traders and stuff where they do well for a while. And then the strategy they had fails like a particular quarter or whatever reporting period, but they don't want to admit that it failed even once. And so they fudge the numbers. But then you have to keep it up. You know, if they can't admit failure even once, and that's where you start to fall behind. And in a tournament career like academia, that's where you're going to get people who are have the incentive to cheat and defraud, especially if they know it's hard to catch and no one's really checking. That's problematic. And anyone who really starts to look is probably going to find it, especially at the very competitive levels, if no one is really checking. Um, and there are probably a lot of people on these anonymous discussion boards who already know about what has been faked and who has plagiarized even before this wide search has started. Uh, the Claudine Gay plagiarism was actually known before this particular trouble because um, she had a target on her back because she had specifically forced out spe um, specific professors. And again, the kind of people who are doing this tournament career are seeing other people as threats to their position as well, because um, there's not room. When there's, you can't grow more positions than anybody else who might be able to shove you out of the way well, they're a threat to your position. You know, I'm, I'm reading books on uh, the Roman Empire uh, and emperors specifically. So um, the emperors, I think it's called by Mary Beard. So, um, and it, that it's not about those power plays. It's actually about some other stuff that I find interesting. But I just finished I, Claudius and Claudius the God. And it definitely has uh, stuff in there where the various emperors are keeping an eye on the people who might shove them from the throne. Uh, and they have good reason to be wary of these people, whether it's a senator or a relative, that they may. And therefore, some of them got executed or basically told, you better suicide yourself. And it did happen historically. So, and it is, of course, all in those novels. Um, in any case, <laughs> Claudine Gay, you know, didn't have those tools to hand, but she could get them to resign or fire them or, you know, that kind of thing. And a lot of people, of course, resented that and went looking at her own record. It wasn't just a matter of she had so few publications, but when you have so few publications, people can actually have the time to look at them all and actually investigate them. And they did. And uh, so the material was to hand when somebody wanted to go after her. Oh, well, that's the danger of these kinds of careers. In any case, that's been stumped death and taxes. As I said, there will be at least two more parts to this. One on, you know, how to deal with 
I, not plagiarism, or what would you call it in the age of generative AI and people writing? So that's one, and part two, and then part three is going to be kind of the credentialism and elitism, because that's come out as well uh, with regards to, you know, what's the value of a Harvard degree anyway? And did Chris Rufo actually have a Harvard degree? So those are the upcoming parts, and I might uh, release those a little more frequently than weekly. So that's been some. Talk to you all later. Oh, uh-huh.